0: Hey, everybody. So this week, instead of having yours truly and Ben here to explain some kind of data science, this or that, I am here instead with a special guest. This is Joel Gruce, and he is a world-renowned author, data scientist, software engineer, and uh, point-of-view holder. Uh, And we're going to talk about all of those things in this episode. Joel, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks a lot for having me. It's good to be here.
0: You are listening to Linear Digressions. So, Joel, I gave you a uh, a rather expansive introduction because you are a, a man of many data sciences. So, um, let me ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, your background and how you've maybe ended up in the spot where you are right now.
1: Sure. So, uh, originally, I'm a math person. I studied math as an undergraduate, and then uh, I got some really bad career advice because I mostly got it from math professors. And so, After I graduated, I went to math graduate school. Uh, After a couple of years of that, uh, I realized I did not want to be a mathematician and I did not want to be uh, a math PhD. So I dropped out and sort of went down a very, uh, very windy career path uh, that that probably is not worth going into every detail of. Uh, Currently, uh, my job title is research engineer. (laughs) I work at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence in Seattle, which is a research nonprofit. We do basically AI research in things like NLP and common sense reasoning and computer vision and extracting information from, for example, scientific papers. Uh, And so my job, I'm on a team called Allen NLP. And in addition to having NLP researchers on the team, we make a library called Allen NLP, which is a deep learning library for NLP researchers to do NLP research. And so most of my job is to work on that library. I was at AI2. I've been there a little over three years. I was at Google as a software engineer for a couple of years, and before that, I did data science at a bunch of startups. Uh, I wrote a book called Data Science from Scratch, uh, that came out in 2015, and the second edition just came out uh, last month. So, if you're in the market for an introductory data science book, uh, Data Science from Scratch is the one I recommend because I wrote it. Uh, I have various other, I have various other sort of minor claims to fame. I'm the I don't like Jupyter notebooks guy. Uh last year I gave a talk at JupyterCon called I don't like notebooks and it it went somewhat viral. Uh, I wrote a blog post once about solving FizzBuzz in an interview situation using TensorFlow that also went somewhat viral.
0: That's a yeah, that's a favorite in our uh, in our department. We like to pass that one around.
1: Yeah, I uh sometimes I make live coding videos. Uh, I used to do this stunt where I would live code a neural network library from scratch. Uh you know, I have various. I'm sure there will be more stupid stunts like that in the future. I just don't know what they are yet.
0: Sounds good. Sounds good. So, yeah, that's uh in in prepping for this, I was kind of struggling with whether to describe you as a software engineer who knows a lot about data scientist about data science. If you think of yourself as a, a data scientist or or a researcher who has strong opinions about software engineers, I mean, to talk about your book a little bit, uh, Data Science from Scratch. I think one thing that it really emphasizes in a way that I think is super valuable is a a way of thinking about data science that has a strong emphasis on software engineering and what's the right way to be thinking about these problems, not just from the methods, but from kind of a coding standpoint. So how do you think about that? Do you think of yourself as a person who uh, is thinking about how to solve data science problems and the software engineering is a means to an end, or is is there something you know, maybe calling back to your software engineering past that's more a little more deeply held than that?
1: So I was a data scientist before I was a software engineer. Um, I, I was working at a startup called Volumetrics, and we were doing analytics on enterprise collaboration data. So going into a big company and looking at who's emailing whom, who's meeting with whom, how often, what topics, things like that. And I was a data scientist. I was not at all a software engineer, but because it was an analytics company the data science sort of was the product. And so I wrote a lot of production code and a, a, a disturbingly large fraction of the product were stupid things that I built in D3 kind of for fun and showed to the CEO and he said, oh, let's ship that. And so what happened was this product had a lot of code in it that was written by me, a data scientist, not a software engineer, and it was not good code and supporting it was, was a real pain in the ass. And so that was one thing. The second thing is I discovered that I actually really liked writing that production code and I wanted to be good at it. And I wasn't getting good at it by being a data scientist writing production code. So I made sort of a a somewhat deliberate choice to say, I really want to get into software engineering and build out that part of my skill set so that I can be more valuable and do more of that kind of work. So I kind of took a hard pivot and said, I'm gonna do less data science and more software engineering I went to Google, and my job at Google had nothing to do with data science in the slightest. It was building back-end systems in C++ and building benchmarking tools to help ad salespeople sell more ads and things like that. And, and so that kind of accomplished my goals of learning more about how do I build good software and what does software engineering best practices look like. But at the same time, after a while, I thought, I want to be kind of closer to the data. And so I tried to sort of bring myself back, which is how I ended up at AI2 in this sort of hybrid research engineering kind of role where I work with researchers. I'm expected to understand deep learning and write deep learning code. But at the end of the day, I'm really kind of a software engineer who understands research.
0: So that's really cool. So tell me a little bit more. One thing I'm wondering about is maybe contrasting the team that you were on at Volimetrics, you know, earlier on a few years ago, because that sounds a lot like probably what a lot of data scientists who are working at various companies are working with right now, like they're kind of a a team of one or they're out there trying to figure out what good code looks like versus the, the team that you're building out and and the work that you're doing now at AI two. Like what's, what's the, um, some hypothetical future state that you think is like a little bit cooler and more advanced that you see that you're building around yourself right now?
1: Um, So, I was very early at Volumetrics. I was a second employee. So the first year I was there, it was the CEO, the lead developer, and me. And the lead developer was very opinionated and he was really a geek about software engineering. He read he would read all sorts of books about software engineering. And when we would disagree about the way to build things, he he would really try and like bulldoze me. Oh well Kent Beck says this, you know, and Uncle Bob Barton says this and like I, I, I really struggled like keeping up my end of those conversations. And this is, uh, I don't recommend doing this, but I sort of recommend doing this. Uh, eventually, I memorized the names of of all the people he would sort of cite as gospel. And sometimes in arguments, I would say, "Oh well, Kent Beck says that you know we should do things my way." <laughs> you like really, Kent Beck said that? I'm like, no. But uh, so, so that was kind of fun to mess with them. So anyway, uh, there was so little team there that. the the standard sort of division between data science and software engineering just sort of didn't exist. We were three people in Mm -hmm. a room. Um, And as time went on, uh, we basically tried to bring in, uh, you know, a CTO who could come in and say, we need to have more discipline around writing unit tests, around code reviews, around various standards, around how we do our source control. Um, And they ended up bringing in someone that I did not get along with and that of, I wouldn't say that's why I left, but that certainly didn't help. Um, and and so uh, the difference, I, I feel very fortunate in that my team at AI2, uh, the team of people building the Allen NLP library, that we really share uh, a deep commitment to strong software engineering discipline. So if you were to look at Allen NLP, you know, I'm tuning my own horn a little bit here, but It's really one of the like highest quality deep learning code bases you will find. It uses Python type annotations everywhere. And we use MyPy to check them as a pre-commit check. We have a pilot pre-commit check. We have extreme unit test coverage. We have, you know, automated documentation building and we have a pre-commit check to make sure that the documentation actually builds. And and so, um, and and we're very hardcore about this even when people come in with, you know, external pull requests, like, okay, you can contribute, but uh, you got to write more tests and you got to type in your code and you got to do all this stuff. So I, I feel very fortunate to be on a team that sort of is of a single mind on this code quality issue right now. And uh, it's very hard for me to imagine ever again working on a team where that is not the case.
0: Cool, cool. And I think that's, I've been, you know, one thing I like about the talks that you give, like you mentioned a couple of, of them at the top, but ones I've read recently are the the one about I don't like notebooks very uh, provocative title. There was one more recently about uh, reproducibility and how the idea of reproducible science has a lot of very strong analogs with software engineering um, best best practices principles, what have you um, and the the slides themselves like n- not all talks are like this, but you can actually sort of follow the narrative of the talk through the slides. You didn't have to be there in person. so some folks who are listening to this might have actually seen those talks, but for those who haven't, um, we'll post links on the, on linear digressions.com and you can actually go in and get most of it out. But, um, the, the reason I mentioned this is it, uh, it seems to be a thing that as you're going out and giving talks publicly talking about, you know, generally what you think people should be paying attention to that it's, it's not just a, a, a local thing that you've set up on your team where they're using these software best practices, but trying to, bring that message to the broader data science community and um, for folks who either don't know that this is a way to think about building things or know it but don't really know how to start unpacking that that seems to be um, you know a, a pretty sweet spot for some of this stuff that you're talking about
1: that's right so with the reproducibility there's there's sort of two sort of mirrored aspects to it one is that if you care about reproducibility and, and a lot of researchers do, or at least say they do um, then, you know, adopting software engineering, best practices, anything from like unit testing to dockerizing things, to making a real clean separation between your library code and your experimental code, uh, those things will help you accomplish that goal of reproducibility. And then there's this flip side, which is uh, kind of an angle. I took, I've been taking a little bit more recently, which is that if you're an engineer, thinks that researchers need to adopt software engineering best practices more than, you know, offering up this carrot of reproducibility, if you do all these things, you'll get reproducibility is a way to kind of use a Trojan horse metaphor, which some people didn't like, but, uh, you know, is a Trojan horse of like sneaking these practices into their workflows.
0: And so this is something that I know you've been talking about for a while now, at least maybe a year, probably longer, I'm not sure how have you felt the reception to that message changing? Were you, have you gotten the sense that as time is going on, more and more data scientists are starting to nod their heads to the stuff that you're talking about?
1: I think that's right. Uh, You know, a year ago, well, I'm always lecturing people about Python three type hints because I love them. I'm like the world's biggest fan of Python three type hints. And I feel like a year ago when I, told people, they're like, eh, that makes, I don't like it, I don't like it, that looks weird, it makes Python look like Java or whatever, and now people are starting to be, you know, a little bit more receptive. It'll be interesting, the The second edition of the book hasn't been out long enough to, you know, get a ton of feedback on it, but one, so the biggest change from the first edition to the second edition was updating from Python 2.7 to Python 3.6, uh, and my number one reason for doing a second edition was that I felt, I felt guilty there was a book out there with my name on it that was telling people to use Python 2.7. Like in, in the current year, that felt I felt bad about it. But because I was revising it, I said, I'm going to take the opportunity to, one, rewrite all the code so that it's more readable. There were a number of places in the first edition where I would sort of tried to be clever, uh, and maybe I was clever, but as time goes on, I find that I always prefer readability to cleverness. The second thing I did, uh, you know, which might have been what you were alluding to, is that I weaved throughout the book this sort of narrative slash emphasis on testing code as you write it. And this is not elaborate, you know, unit test setups or no's or whatever. This is really, we've written a function. Now let's write a couple of assert test cases to make sure it works. And so it fits into the flow of the book. It actually illustrates, here's an example of using this function. And, the, and it makes it so that the code has some semblance of tests with it. And, and I do the same kind of thing when I'm doing live coding. I did this live coding for Advent of Code this year and last year, where I'm trying to solve a problem that I've never seen before. And, and so I'll break it down into pieces. I'll, I'll write a function for one of the pieces. And then before I proceed, I'll, I'll write a couple of tiny unit tests for it and just check that what I've written works before I go on to the next part. And, and I, I think a lot of people have said to me, uh, you know, before I watched those videos, I didn't use assert statements, I didn't use type hints, but since seeing how they help you you know, make fewer mistakes and get problems solved more quickly and more easily, I've adopted that. And, and I think that's one place where the videos are actually quite nice.
0: Now, one follow-up question that I wanted to ask, and this, this might be... Uh a little bit unfair, because I know that you mostly think about like what are the software engineering best practices, but one of the challenges that me and my team, we run into the most in thinking about writing well-tested software is that um, a lot of the bugs that we find actually come from the data that we're putting in, not from the code that we're writing itself, right? Or it's assumptions that the code is making about the data that's coming in and that end up not being true about the data as it actually arrives. So how do you... Is that something that you're starting to think about um, two? Is that something that you know just in practice doesn't come up enough in your day-to-day work that it's a huge component of how you think about um you know software testing? Like where does the where does data testing come in or not come into the picture as you see it?
1: So I'm building tools for researchers who are mostly working with kind of standard data sets, so especially in NLP you know, there's this squad data set, which is a Stanford question answering data set. And so for a while, everyone was working with the exact same data set. And so the issues were less, is the data bad, but more, have I read in the data incorrectly somehow? And so that's the sort of thing that's easy to write a test for. You say, you know, here's my code that reads in the data sets, and here's a fake test fixture, which is a file on disk that looks like, you know, maybe two records from the actual data set and now read them in and assert that they have the right fields. So for things that are really mechanical like that, I think it's relatively straightforward. For things like, uh, you know, I expect this value to be between 0 and 10, or I expect this value to be positive, or I expect that if, you know, field A is populated, then field B must not be populated, or vice versa. To me, those kind of tests feel like they belong naturally in your data pipeline, right? So in an ideal world, if you have these invariants about your data, you wanna check every piece of data for that. You know, in practice that might be too expensive or too slow um, and you do the best you can. But insofar as you either have invariants that violating them will break your code and you expect they might get violated sometimes, proactively checking them will probably save you time, you know, a lot of time in the long run.
0: Totally, yeah. Um, and so one thing I just want to make sure that we, that we cover is um, going back to the book here for a second. I know for folks who have the first edition and are upgrading to the, to the second stuff, like uh, the new Python version, like um, more readable code though. I assume they'll know what you're talking to and, or what you're speaking about and, and can kind of fill in the gaps for themselves for folks who haven't read the first edition, or who are wondering if they should pick it up. Can you just say a little bit about maybe, you can speak to what's in the book, but I think a more interesting question is like, who is it written for? What are what are you trying to accomplish with that? So that if someone is listening to this and they're like, oh yeah, I'm that person, they know to go pick it up.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the full title is Data Science from Scratch, First Principles with Python. So because I am trained as a math person, math people do things from first principles. They you come in on the first day of class and you start proving the theorems you're going to need in order to, you know, prove the theorems that you want to prove at the end of the class. And I actually had a class in graduate school where we came in on the the first day of the second semester and it was a different professor. And he said, I'm so glad that that other professor proved this one theorem because that means I can use it in this class and I want to use it in this class. And it's sort of, it's a way of looking at the world that unless you've actually built something and implemented something, uh, you don't, you don't get to use it. And so I kind of took that approach to data science. And what I mean by that approach is you want to understand how something works. Well, we're going to implement it in hopefully a clear but probably non- performant way. So everything from you know statistical inference. Okay, we're going to implement the statistical inference code uh, from the basics so that we can hopefully understand how it works. Things like Web scraping. We'll build our own web scraper, things like using the Twitter API. Okay. We'll use a library for that, but we'll go through the details of what do we do to get authenticated and call that library. Things like cleaning data, munging data all the way up to machine learning models. You know, we're going to implement our own linear regression. We're going to implement our own, you know, decision tree algorithm. We're going to implement our own neural network library, things like that. And so that's kind of the angle of the book. Uh, When I was writing it, I had in mind a a long time ago, back in 2012 or so, I had gotten permission from my boss at Olimetrics to hire a couple of junior data scientists to help out. And at the time, 2012, data science was not that popular. And so I literally just put ads out there that said, you know, data scientists needed no experience necessary, must know some math and some programming. Like, that was literally all I asked for. And so... When it came time, to, and actually, it's funny, I had a really hard time finding people to apply for that job, whereas now if you put that job posting up, you'd probably drown an applicant. But the target reader for the book, when I wrote it, was one of those people who I hired who, you know, he understood math, and he could write simple Python code, but he didn't really know anything about working with data. He didn't really know anything about machine learning. He didn't know anything about much about coding beyond writing simple scripts. And so that's kind of the target for the book.
0: And so for the folks who are listening to this, who are now thinking about that that thing that you mentioned, like there's uh, data science jobs out there that are attracting lots and lots of applicants. And they're saying, okay, from what I'm hearing from Joel, it sounds like uh, depending on the shop, having some of these software engineering skills can be really valuable. Um, if this is my first data science gig, I should maybe pick up this book and, and a few others potentially and cut my teeth. Um, what are some of the other things as you're thinking about how you want to grow your team, like what you're hiring for, who's out there? Um, how do you think about that part of your job now, especially keeping in mind that probably a bunch of people who are listening to this are are wondering, like, be like oh, that sounds really cool. Like, how can I what are the things that? Um, folks like Joel are are looking for, what are the most valuable ways that I can be spending my time to like differentiate myself in that huge pile of resumes that you see?
1: Well, uh, I don't know that trying to appeal to me is the best career strategy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I'm representative of, of most hiring managers. Why is that? I have some very strong opinions about interviewing that, that ah. are slightly... You know, I I can't say that people necessarily disagree with them, but I don't think I'm on the same page as a lot of people. Like when people tell me here's what here's how I'm going to conduct an interview, uh, I I have a very strong gut reaction. Like that's a great question, or or that's an awful question. Don't ask that. Um, yeah.
0: Okay, interesting. Well, let me let me try again, and then um, I think like the gist of the question that I'm that I'm wondering about is. Maybe I'll phrase it this way. This is a question that I get a lot is folks saying, um, you know, I'm trying to get my first job in data science, or maybe I'm coming out of one of these boot camps or something, knowing that it's a field that's got a lot of folks in it. Um, and especially like that first job can be fairly challenging to get. Let's imagine they're maybe not applying for like your specific team or your specific role, but you're just trying to give them maybe slightly more general advice. Um, what are some of the pieces of advice you, you find yourself giving if people ask you this question?
1: so this is the number one piece of advice that I give. And it's, not, it's slightly orthogonal to what you're asking. But that is that personal connections and networking matter a ton. And that knowing someone and having them put your resume into the system gives you a huge leg up over, you know, sending your resume off into the void or pressing upload on some site. And my experience has been that you know, those personal connections get you much further along in the process than just applying blindly. So, you know, I I hesitate to recommend this because now I'm going to get tons of LinkedIn messages. But if you see somewhere that you want to work, instead of just putting your resume in their site, go on LinkedIn, find out who works there. Maybe you know them, maybe they're second degree. Reach out to that person and you know, a lot of places offer referral bonuses so if you seem decent they'll be happy to refer you in and that get you to the front of the queue so so that's that's sort of one kind of meta piece of advice in terms of it's just in terms of the other it's hard because so many different people care about so many different things i, I mean part of me saying that i have these strong opinions about interviews is that people will tell me their favorite interview questions and and i'm like that's a terrible question but to them it's a great question and it's what they want to ask and so that makes it hard to give kind of a, a one-size-fits-all answer. Uh, you want, I mean, for me, obviously, having better software engineering skills, I'm I'm strongly in the camp of data scientists should have some software engineering skills. And as a data scientist, the more software engineering skills you have, the better. And that doesn't mean be a computer scientist, but it means, you know, use... Uh, source control, use code reviews, write tests, things like that. And, and so for me, if I'm hiring and I see someone who has that, that's a leg up for me. Uh, to the extent there's a coding sample, like I said, I care much more about readability than cleverness. And so if someone is you know submitting code or pointing me to their GitHub repo and I see like really clean, well-structured code, that also counts a lot for me, but uh, don't know that there's a secret sauce. If there was, then the boot camps would be selling it, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and then that was the thing that I was about to point out. Is like as I was listening to you, one of the notable things that I didn't hear was any kind of hard filter on background. Like you, ha- you were a math PhD dropout. I myself has a. Um, I finished a, a PhD in the hard sciences. I work with a bunch of people who do, but I also work with a, a bunch of people who didn't come from that background, and some of them came from boot camps, some of them came from you know they learned software engineering kind of like on the on the metaphorical streets, um, and I think that that is just something that I would I I think that was um, maybe not totally explicit on your part because you know there's a million things that you could leave out in a listing of. Um, what you look for when you're hiring, but I think it is worth like actually just making explicit. Like it sounds like whether you can execute on certain types of things, have certain skills or knowledge or a certain type of disposition is much more likely to have a a big impact for you about whether someone's successful than whether they come from any type of fancy program or any particular school or any of that kind of stuff.
1: I used to care much more about that stuff, and and a couple of times I've been burned by over-indexing on, wow, this person went to a prestigious school, so they must be pretty good, or wow, this person, you know, has this particular work experience, so they must be pretty good. And over time, I I tend to, I can't say I completely discount it. I mean, if someone comes to me and they say, oh, you know, I I, I spent three years at Google and two years at Facebook, I say, well, you know, those are like one, they're pretty strict about who they hire so the fact that you got hired there and didn't get fired immediately says something about you and I'm not going to totally discount that at the same time if you say to me you're hiring a data scientist who do you hire I'm not looking for specific degrees I'm not looking for specific colleges or even any college at all I'm not looking for specific companies I just I I don't like relying on that stuff very much to be honest
0: cool so I have a few more questions that I wanted to ask, and then and then we'll wrap up. Um, so one is you mentioned a, a little bit as an aside earlier, like you've been working in data science for uh, a relatively long long time um, relative to the, the the age of the field overall. it's a young field. Um, so for folks who are more recently recent uh, let's say immigrants to to the field of data science, people who have less than six or seven years of experience since, since their first data science job. Like, what are some of the biggest changes you have seen, even in that relatively short period of time? It seems like a, a field that has changed a lot. And what are some of the, the biggest changes that you have seen?
1: So uh, a few. One is obviously the rise of deep learning. You know, in 2011 was the first time I had an actual data science job and no one was doing deep learning then there was no tensorflow there was no pytorch there was no nothing whereas now you know it's not like all data scientists are doing deep learning but some data scientists are doing deep learning and there's so much almost turnkey deep learning stuff that i would if i had a data scientist in a job in a role that involves some kind of machine learning i would be kind of skeptical of them if they didn't know some of that and weren't familiar with it and weren't interested in trying it just because that, that's kind of the state of the art in solving a lot of problems that, that are actually relevant to data science type business problems. So that's one sort of huge change. Uh, another is that the tooling has just become more and more mature over time. I mean, you know, 2011, there was it's scikit-learn. We had NumPy, we had R, we had all those things, but things have become a lot more polished um, Which is nice. Uh, A third is is sort of the point that that I've been harping on a little bit, which is that data scientists tend to be thinking a little bit more around, you know, engineering best practices. Uh, Back in 2011, data scientists certainly, uh, and even software engineers to some degree, were were much less thinking about those kind of things. And you know, the the other big change uh, is that now everyone knows what data science is. In 2011 when I started doing it, we had this data science meetup. It didn't even have data science in the title, but it was a data science meetup and it was like 20 people and we all knew each other and we all had data science type jobs. And that was kind of it. And now that same meetup sort of died out, came back and now it's like hundreds of people, you know, a lot of whom want to get into the field. So that's, that's also a really big change.
0: And uh, my last question for you, a, a question that's always like a little bit dangerous to ask is, I'm wondering if, if you want to go out on a limb anywhere and make predictions about where you think data science is, is going maybe in the next couple of years. Another way to think of that, if, if it's helpful is also what are some of the, some of the pain points that you think data scientists still have that when you pull your head up and think about it for a second, you're like, yeah, this is, this is a problem that we're, we've, we've got to, there's got to be a solution to this one. And we're Probably going to figure it out in the next few years. Like, where is data science still suboptimal in in your view? In a way that um, there's probably you you know you think the tools are out there and to to fix it in the next few years, but it's just an issue of like people kind of putting it together and and the field gelling around those those changes that you see potentially on the horizon.
1: Yeah. So when I when I made the switch to kind of software engineering. And this was in 2014. Like I said, a lot of that was because of my interest. I said, you know, I'm really, I like writing production code. I'm going to get better at it. But part of it was also a skepticism towards data science as a standalone discipline. And, and I think part of what I saw coming was this sort of distinction that we have now between the more machine learning engineer kind of data scientists, or maybe even that's the role itself, and then the more I don't want to call it down market, but the more dashboardy data analyst kind of data scientists. And I think the the field is is starting to it's getting crowded not just in terms of people but in terms of breadth as well. You have some people who are data scientists who are writing deep learning code and you have some people who are data scientists who are, you know, maybe writing SQL queries and building dashboards. And In the worst case, you get people who are hired to do one thing and end up having to do the other and they feel misled. And so it's not clear to me if it will all kind of hold together as one thing or if it splits and you get, you know, these are the machine learning engineer really becomes a much more important role. And a lot of the data scientists who are more into writing code end up as machine learning engineers and a lot of the ones who... I don't think you can go back to calling people data analysts after they've been data scientists. But you know, it's possible that data scientist itself becomes—I don't want to say down market—but you know, a more down market job, if you will. Uh, it's no, but it's not clear to me how this will all shake out. Um, so that's one answer. The second answer is that, and you know, this is me um, tuning my own horn a bit. But I, I think some of the issues that I brought up with. Notebooks are real, and I did not really go into them here. But you know, if you're interested, you know, Google. I don't like notebooks, and you'll find my slides, and they're pretty self-explanatory. And, and so, I, I think people are really thinking hard about, you know, how can we address some of these things? Um, how can we give people the things they like about notebooks, but with also more of an eye towards Doing reproducible science and making things testable and making things modular and repeat and things like that. And and so, I suspect that's another area where where you'll see a lot of iteration and growth, uh, you know, over the next few years. And then, the third is, I would say, probably there's going to be some continued what I call democratization of deep learning, where you know, four years ago, if you wanted to do deep learning, you were building your own tools or hacking really low of TensorFlow and then there's Keras and then there's PyTorch and and things are just going to become higher and higher level. And we're already partway there, but basically you can train deep learning models without really knowing much about deep learning for better or for worse. But I I, I think that's also uh, a direction that we'll see.
0: Well, I will, I'll hold you to that and I'm going to get back in touch in two years and we'll, we'll see what your scorecard is. (laughs) All right. Okay, so one more time with the books with the with the book for the folks in the back. Uh, if people are interested in picking that up, where should they go to look for it?
1: Oh, yeah, so um the book is called Data Science from Scratch: First Principles with Python. You can find it on Amazon. uh be wary. there are several other books called Data Science from Scratch by jerks who decided that hey that book's doing well I'll make a shitty book with the same title and try and confuse Wait, did people they really, did so, that
0: that's actually that actually happened there's like yeah yeah oh that sucks man okay anyway.
1: Yeah, so uh, for a while there was one that was actually plagiarized and they basically took the text and changed a few words so um any book but, but I, I got Amazon to take that one down. but the other okay. ones uh you can't, you can't copyright a title I guess so yeah so only get the one that has my name on the cover uh, that's, that's the real one um So you can buy that at Amazon if you want uh, a PDF of it. O'Reilly doesn't sell PDFs anymore, but you can get that from eBooks.com. Or if you have a Safari subscription on O'Reilly, you can get the book that way as well. Some people have told me that their public libraries have Safari subscriptions. So it's possible that your public library has a Safari subscription. You can read the book that way as well. Can I plug all the rest of my stuff too? Go for it. Okay. So, uh, I have a Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. That's at Joel Groose, J-O-E-L-G-R-U-S. Uh, I have a website slash blog that I very infrequently update, but when I do, it's usually pretty good. That's joelgroose.com. And uh, I make some live coding videos. Like I said, that's youtube.com slash joelgroose. And it so happens that I do have my own podcast with Andrew Musselman. That's called Adversarial Learning, and it's at adversariallearning.com. I think those are all my things to pick. Oh,
0: cool! And actually, that I'm, I lied a minute ago when I said that I had—I was asking my last question because I don't think I've ever had anyone on here before who had a podcast in their own right. So, it's adversarial learning. Um, how long have you been doing that now? It's been a while.
1: Uh, yeah, it's been probably two years, maybe, probably maybe even more than that. Cool. But and- but we don't put out episodes that frequently. It's been two years, but it's probably only about 25 episodes, maybe even.
0: Pure. And do, do you like it? How do you, how do you figure out what you want to talk about on there?
1: Well, so I, I like having a podcast. I like talking on podcasts. I hate editing podcasts. That's like my least favorite thing. Um, how do I figure out what I want to talk about? We Usually a- Andrew and I chat online and we try and figure out who we should get as a guest. And then either we brainstorm together or brainstorm separately. It It totally depends. We, we like to have fun with it. So Actually, what we did on the most recent one, because I wanted to promote my book, we did an episode where we pretended that Andrew was the only host and I was his guest, and as if I was not the host of the podcast. And so we made a lot of inside jokes about previous episodes where I'd ask him, "Oh, do you know so and so?" And he's like, "Yes, we've had them on the I've had him on the podcast before." So, so that was that was a good one. Um, you know, one time we had uh, Vicky Boykus on, and. I think this was her episode. It must be her episode. And the topic was data science myths. And I think she chose that. And so in preparation, I made up a bunch of data science myths that I was going to ask her about, but they were like, um, you know, some of them were real and some of them were like, if you look in the mirror and say data science three times, uh, you know, Drew Conway will appear behind you and bonk you over the head with a Venn diagram and things like that.
0: I mean, in fairness, have you ever done that? Do you know that that's not going to happen? no
1: i i haven't that's why i included it so, <laughs> so 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 when i was going through like my list of myths to ask her about there were a lot of like really goofy ones in there um and so that helped drive the conversation as well you know we did an episode with uh, tim hopper where we just took turns telling stories about the worst interviews we've been on that was probably the most,
0: oh, yeah, loved the most episode yeah, definitely.
1: Um, but but Andrew and I are both kind of uh, loudmouthed, so we tend not to have too much trouble keeping the conversation going, even if we don't prepare that much.
0: Yeah, cool. Very good. Well, if anybody is listening to this who is not already familiar, uh, yeah, go check it out because I know you all like podcasts out there. Cool. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here today. Joel, thank you for coming on again. This was really fun for me. I hope it was fun for you too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.